a thousand generations of Jedi Knights and Guardians of Peace, Justice, Welcome back to A People's History of the Old Republic, Episode 7.4, The Hero's Journey. Last time we did the meta for Sotor and introduced all eight class characters as well as their horrible nicknames and titles. This time we finally get to Sotor's main story and witness the first death of the Sith Emperor. I'm Luke, that's Kelsey, and there's always a bit of truth in Legends. Uh, one real quick note before we get started. Um, as you may have noticed, it's hard to keep track of the dates of many of the events in uh, Star Wars The Old Republic because little details like that tend to get worked out in reference books and the game only has one of those. So until very recently, we believed that Swotor's story and expansions lasted from 3643 to 3630. However, in a forum post on, dated June 15th, 2020, Sotor writer and director Charles Boyd gave an updated list of dates for main story events and expansion content beginning in 3640 and going to 3626. No dates were changed from before 3640, and these revisions don't change anything in the story. If anything, they make the timeline more believable, but they do contradict some of the dates we've used in episodes 7.0 to 7.3. This info didn't come to our attention until recently, so we will use it. We will use the new dates from this point forward. Boyd also seemed to confirm that at least one more content update is forthcoming for Swotor to wrap up the loose ends from Onslaught, so it may well extend later than 3626. If all this seems abstract and confusing, here's an example of how the dates have changed. Originally, we thought that the Galactic War ended in 3636 and the, that the final expansion Onslaught occurred in 3630. Instead, Boyd's revisions show the Galactic War ending in 3635 and Onslaught lasting until 3626. So instead of a six-year war, the Galactic War lasted seven years, and instead of taking place over a 13-year period, Swotor's main story covers a 17-year period. This is the thing that everybody wants in podcasting, somebody doing mind-numbing calculations. It's not a huge deal, but we wanted to make you aware that new info became available and the remaining episodes of series seven will slightly contradict some dates noted in previous episodes. We will also uh, be adding a brief note to episode 7.0 regarding this change. And thank you for coming to uh, math corner. <coughs> I like to think it's our attention to detail that gets people coming back. <laughs> That's what makes. Oh, well, I mean, I, 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 I hope so. But at the same time, I doubt anybody wants to hear me doing math. Fair enough. Ooh. So, Star Wars, The Old Republic, Part 4. The Galactic War begins, 3642-3640. Last time, we covered the beginning of each class character storyline. We brought those characters from 3643 to early 3642 as the Republic slash Jedi, and the Sith Empire once again prepared for war. This episode, we're rejoining the wider narrative where we will stay for the rest of Series 7. By way of a brief recap, in case you've forgotten Episode 7.2, the Treaty of Coruscant, I would signed on Alderaan in 3653, brought about a 
decade of relative peace between the two superpowers that allowed each to rebuild and reload to some degree. But in the end, the terms of the Treaty of Coruscant were far too onerous to the Republic and Jedi. They agreed because the Sith held Coruscant hostage, not because they believed it would lead to long-lasting peace. Of course, the Sith never meant for the treaty to last forever either. It was a politically expedient that weakened their enemies while letting them claim new territory and rebuild. The Republican Sith simply had too much unresolved bad blood to maintain the Cold War status quo for any length of time. Remember, regardless of the Sith Emperor and Dark Council's machinations, the true Sith Empire's goal is getting revenge for the joint Republic-Jedi cleansing of Korriban in 4999. They want to commit to genocide against the Jedi and supplant the Republic. Meanwhile, the Sith believe that the Republican Jedi would take the first opportunity to attempt to wipe them out again, so coexistence isn't really an option for either side. This is a zero-sum game. The Republic's last Jedi and the Sith Empire are fundamentally incompatible and no treaty will rectify that, especially not that treaty. In the end, the Treaty of Coruscant lasted for the better part of 11 years, but it was felled by proxy wars. Finally, in early 3642, shortly after the end of the Desolator Crisis and Plan Zero, the Galactic War began. Because of its size, the Galactic War will last from this episode to the beginning of episode 7.6. This episode will cover chapters 1-3 through and the chapter 3 epilogue of Swotor from the outbreak of the Galactic War in 3642, through the defeat of Malgus' Splinter Empire in 3640. Before the Galactic War begins, let's briefly take stock of the status of all the prominent players in the galaxy. The Republic is led by Supreme Chancellor Dorian Generis, with its capital on Coruscant, and it's holding up surprisingly well. Following the Treaty of Coruscant, the Republic made major territorial concessions to the Sith, giving up control of much of the mid and outer rims. Because those two regions contained most of the mineral-rich worlds in the galaxy, the Republic lost access to many necessary resources that it had to find elsewhere. The Republic also suffered a prolonged economic recession for most of the Cold War War though they were able to maintain their massive military in anticipation of another war with the Sith. They also mostly held their remaining territory intact, with the notable exception of Alderaan, which seceded in 3653. The Republic also recently lost several... also recently lost several high-ranking military officials and strategists during the Sith operation known as Plan Zero. So things aren't great for the Republic, but they can be a whole lot worse, all things considered. The Jedi Order, meanwhile, is led by Grandmaster Satel Shan and based on their ancestral homeworld located in the Deep Core, Tython. Following the sacking of Coruscant, public approval of the Jedi fell drastically and they were shunned by many Republic citizens, which led to the Senate refusing to allocate funds for rebuilding the Jedi High Temple. So the Jedi built a new one on Tython, recently rediscovered after more than 21,000 years. Despite the deaths of more than 1,000 Jedi during the Great Galactic War, the Jedi Order still has at least 1,000 knights spread across the galaxy. 
That number could be much higher, though they really aren't terribly specific. The relationship between the Jedi and Republic is strained, but not broken by any means. Despite the widespread unpopularity of the Jedi, the Order is still involved in galactic politics on Coruscant and will join the Republic during the Galactic War. The Jedi may have moved to Tython for a little while to heal the Order and to get some time out of the spotlight, but the Republic leaders know they need the Jedi in any war. Currently, Jedi are spread all over the galaxy, though many reside on Tython. The Sith Empire, meanwhile, isn't faring as well as you might think. Though they took over vast swaths of space in the outer and mid-rims in 3653, those worlds did not all bow to the Sith. Worlds such as Balmora and Tarl V5 resisted Sith occupation and maintained ongoing resistance efforts for, in some cases, decades. Resistance efforts and personnel shortages led to an inability to grab all the resources needed for upkeep of the military and the thousands of force-using Sith spread across the galaxy. On the surface, things looked great. The Sith had massive territorial gains and negotiated a very favorable treaty to end the Great Galactic War. However, just beneath the surface cracks were starting to form, and factionalism became commonplace among the high-level Sith. Some, like Darth Barris, wanted to restart the war and finally conquer the galaxy in the name of the Sith. Others on the Dark Council wished to maintain the Treaty of Coruscant for longer in order to rebuild a little more. Then there's Darth Malgus, whose actions during the Cold War are completely unknown. Malgus essentially goes dark for 11 years after the sacking of Coruscant, but when he resurfaces, he's still furious that the Sith let the Jedi and Republic off the hook in 3653. Malgus, like other Sith, has become disillusioned with the Empire, the Dark Council, and the Sith Emperor. Once seen as the embodiment of Sith ideals on the dark side, Malgus now sees that they are playing politics and it disgusts him. Finally, there is the increasingly distant Sith Emperor. Most Imperials view him with reverence, believing he only wants the best for the Empire and the Sith. But the Emperor has an ulterior motive. He wants to perform another Sith ritual like he did on Nathema to grant him nigh immortality in 4999. In order to fully transcend death, the Emperor wants to perform the ritual on a galactic scale, literally wiping out all life in the galaxy and then letting it begin. Again, he doesn't care about the Sith, and the dark side is just a means to an end. What's all this mean? Despite the favorable treaty, massive new territory, and generally winning the Great Galactic War, the Sith Empire is crumbling from within. The Galactic War begins. We're going to have these little section titles to make it easier to follow, or at least we hope they will. Now, finally, after a full episode of teasing it, the Galactic War in the main story of Sordor can commence. After one more disclaimer. Remember that this narrative is cobbled together from eight different class character storylines and concurrent events that sometimes all run parallel to one another and at other times all collide on a single location. Despite the Desolator Crisis, half a dozen proxy wars, and Plan Zero, there's, there is still no formal declaration of war by either side. Instead, Chapter 1 of Sotor begins right where KOTOR 2 left off, with Mitra Sert trying to help Revan. 308 years later, 
Surik is now a force ghost after she was betrayed and killed by Lord Scourge during the assault on the Sith Emperor in 3950. Now in 3642, Surik appears to be to a world-weary Jedi Master of Yoda's species named Oteg with a warning. Surik says that for more than 300 years, the legendary Jedi Revan has been imprisoned by the Sith Emperor in a prison buried deep within the Maelstrom Nebula. Surik refused to become one with the Force, using her intense Force bond with Revan to keep his mind from cracking. For three centuries, Revan used his connection to the Emperor to hold the darkness at bay, but no Jedi could hope to rein in the Sith Emperor permanently, not even one as strong as Revan. Soon Revan will be consumed by the darkness as the Sith Emperor prepares for, prepares for his ritual to consume all life in the galaxy. For years, the Jedi sought any info on the Sith Emperor and learned very little outside of Kira Carson and her knowledge of the children of the Emperor. Then the Force ghost of a long-dead Jedi hero appeared out of the blue and dropped the key to finding and defeating the Sith Emperor in their lap. Surik's ghost doesn't last long and speaks cryptically, warning Master Oteg that failure is not an option. Then Surik's force ghost disappeared, leaving Oteg to gather an elite team to infiltrate Terrell 5, a world in the Outer Rim with an astrogation computer capable of navigating the Maelstrom Nebula. Because Terrell 5 is in Sith territory, any Republic or Jedi action would be tantamount to a declaration of war. But with the Sith Emperor preparing to cleanse the galaxy of life via Sith ritual, the Jedi and Republic agreed to act and damn the consequences. The Battle of Terrell 5 was a smash and grab job. The Sith had no knowledge that Oteg's force was coming and the Imperials were largely obliterated, both in space and on the ground. Oteg's team recovered the computer and then joined a much larger Republic slash Jedi strike force for the assault on the Maelstrom Nebula. In addition to gathering intel, the Battle of Terrell V serves as the first official battle of the Galactic War. Open war soon broke out across the galaxy with proxy wars giving way to great power conflict. The Sith Emperor appointed Darth Baras as the head of Imperial war efforts and he ordered the Dark Council to implement a strategy of total war in hopes of quickly dashing the Republican Jedi. Unbeknownst to all of them, save perhaps the Emperor, the zenith of the true Sith Empire was already 11 years in the past. In 3653, the Sith held Coruscant by the throat during the first successful invasion of the Republic capital world since the Republic's founding some 21,400 years before. They got even closer than Ulic Keldroma did during the Great Sith War until he was betrayed by his allies and arrested. When the Sith sacked Coruscant in 3653, they killed nearly every Jedi on the planet, leveled the High Temple, and cowed the Republic Senate. In one fell swoop, the Sith had, in some cases quite literally, beheaded the two pillars of the Republic in the form of the Jedi Order in the Senate, which held authority over the military. But they let it go for a treaty instead of completing their goal of usurping the Republic politically and destroying the Jedi via genocide, the Sith chose to use Coruscant as leverage to force a treaty. Darth Malgus was right in Episode 7.2 when he berated Darth Angral for the Empire's failure to annihilate their two enemies when they had each other by the throat. Or they had each of them by the throat. The Sith Empire were cowards and charlatans, and Malgus was right to doubt his emperor 
who was only using the Sith and dark side as a means to an end. But it is too late to fix that now. Instead, the Sith Empire will continue sliding into mediocrity and, in the next three years, begin to splinter into different and various factions. The Battle of the Maelstrom, which followed directly on the heels of Terra V, was a stunning success for the Republic. The Republic's first expeditionary fleet encountered the entirety of the Imperial Fifth Fleet above the Maelstrom prison, while Jedi Master Otek infiltrated the complex with a strike team on the ground. Well over 100,000 personnel took part, and though the Republic suffered heavy losses, the Sith were utterly routed. All Imperial ground units were killed, and only a few scant ships limped away. Oteg and his team freed Revan, and the now 352-year-old Jedi regaled his liberators with his story, which is just the plot of the Revan novel. Revan also revealed that he kept a Rakatan superweapon called the Foundry secret from the, the Sith Emperor. The Foundry could turn out battle droids quickly, so it's basically a smaller Starforge. Just before Revan left, Sirk's first ghost appeared, comforting her old friend one last time before presumably becoming one with the Force. After Revan departed for Tython to report everything to the Jedi High Council and his great-great-great-great-great-granddaughter, Grandmaster Satil Shan, however, the Sith weren't totally lost. On Terrace, Darth Gravis foiled the Republic's Terrace Resettlement Initiative, bringing it to a permanent end after six years. An Imperial strike team also infiltrated and hijacked a Republic cruiser called the Doran's Sky, which they would use to sneak past the Republic ships at the Foundry. The Battle of the Foundry would be one of the Empire's crowning victories as the Sith scored a major victory against Revan and the Republic. Darth Malgus held overall command of the operation and was aided by all four Imperial class characters, Darth Knox, the Empire's Wrath, Cypher 9, and the Hunter. The assault team infiltrated the foundry using the Doran Sky while the Imperial fleet held off the Republic fleet from landing additional forces, suffering catastrophic losses in the process. It's unclear how much of the plan Revan actually revealed to the Jedi Republic as we find out that the foundry is producing extermination droids that only target anyone with Sith blood. What Revan is suggesting is genocide by blood quantum, and there's no way Satil Shan would have agreed to that. 300 years of mental torture is taking its toll. Incidentally, the Foundry is now the 20th superweapon of the show. This isn't the old Revan, the one who married Bastila and saved the galaxy in KOTOR. Sure, it's the same body with Revan's memories, but even the game makes it clear that Revan's mind is broken. After so many years of torture, all he could think of was destroying the Sith permanently, even at the cost of genocide. On the Foundry, Revan had had a battalion of execution droids and a newly rebuilt HK-47, who is excited to be killing meatbags again. Sadly, HK-47 won't be around very long, as Revan's forces are about to be decimated. The four Imperial-class characters carve their way through the facility, taking out Revan's droids and anyone else who happened to be around. The Sith strike team eventually found Revan, and all four Imperial-class characters dueled him at the same time. Though it was a difficult fight, the Sith eventually prevailed over Revan's awesome power in the Force. 
Revan was badly injured and disappeared in a burst of force energy, causing many to believe that he had finally died. With Revan's disappearance, the Sith victory in the Battle of the Foundry was complete, and though it was impressive, the consequences would be damning to the Empire. Unbeknownst to anyone in the strike team, Darth Malgus was using it as a chance to get new tech, including a rebuilt HK-47, for the Splinter New Empire he would create less than a year later. Additionally, the victory came at a heavy cost, as more than 90% of the Sith Expeditionary Fleet was lost, defending the Foundry from Republic ships trying to land reinforcements, and most of the ground forces were killed too. In the end, the Battle of the Foundry was a Pyrrhic victory in every sense of the term, and it would not be the last for the Sith. And this leads us to the Quesh War. Throughout the Galactic War, there are numerous minor conflicts that explode outward and become battlefronts for the Republic and Empire. <clears throat> the Quesh War occurs entirely during 3642, following the start of the Galactic War. Located on Quesh in Hut space, the war sprang up as a result of multi-party fighting to control Quesh's only export, a chemical called Quesh venom that was used to make long-lasting, high-potency stims for combat use. They're always fighting over drugs. Just after the Battle of Terrell V, the Empire invaded Kesh, hoping to exploit the supply of Kesh venom. In response, the Republic moved to defend the world, though their intentions were hardly altruistic as they wanted to make their own stems. The Huts on Kesh, led by the notorious Three Families, were mostly eager for Republic and Jedi assistance, though some Huts secretly worked with the Empire. At the outset, the Sith invasion was a total success as they put Republic soldiers and Jedi to flight with relative ease and were bolstered by Empire's Wrath and Cypher 9, each undertaking short missions to Kesh to aid Sith forces. However, the Republic slash Jedi countered, aided by the hero of Tython and others who led Jedi, Re Jedi Republic troops and members of the Kesh resistance to uproot, uproot the Sith from Kesh after several hard-fought hard skirmishes. The Kesh war ended before 3642 was out with the Republic coming away victorious and returned the world to the three families while returning the world to the three families and taking a larger amount of Kesh venom for use in the war. Though the Kesh war is relatively short, it's a good example of how the characters interact with the story in the background. During the Kesh war, there are multiple missions for any of the Republic and Imperial cla class characters to complete on Kesh, with the three we mentioned having specific quests there during their storylines. The war is also a good way to show how the Republic and Sith will get drawn into numerous sub-conflicts that become smaller parts of the much larger galactic war. In the future, this will happen multiple times, including the Dread Wars, the Hut Cartel power play, Malgus's new empire, and more. It also leads us into the Battle of Balmora, which was a protracted resistance effort on, a, on the mid-rim world Balmora that stretched back almost 30 years to 3670 at the very latest. While the Balmoran resistance sorry, while the Balmoran resistance conflict lasted much longer, 
it's treated much the same as Kesh in Swooptor. It's an ongoing battle that involves multiple missions for any Republic or Imperial class characters to complete and sees both the Barsenthor and the Hunter arrive on quest during their individual storylines. The Battle of Balmora. Despite the name, the Battle of Balmora isn't one engagement, but a series of battles that lasts for most of 3642. As we noted in episode 7.1 and 7.2, Balmora was prized for its factories, which produced battle droids, weapons, and vehicles to fuel the Republic war effort. The Sith began their occupation by 3670 at the latest, and annexed the world outright after the Treaty of Coruscant. But Balmoran resistance was immediate and stiff. The local rebels were aided by stray Jedi from time to time and were able to stick around after commandeering several factories owned by wealthy families who opposed the Sith. When a group of rebels was discovered, they would retreat to another factory, disabling or destroying the one they had been using. They were aided by the fact that Sith resources were stretched thin and an orbital bombardment was impossible because the Empire desperately needed all factories to continue manufacturing. In 3643, resistance efforts were secretly aided by the Republic and fighting became intense. The missions on Balmora actually began in 3643, before the Cold War ended, but it all largely blurred since the Republic's aid was, at best, an open secret that simply went officially unacknowledged. Thus, when the Treaty of Coruscant dissolved in Tarot 5 in 3642, the Republic sent a large contingent of troops, ships, and Jedi to liberate Balmora. At this point, the Barsenthor was dispatched to lead local resistance, oust the Sith from the planet, and free the planet as a sign of good faith to get the Rift Alliance to join the Republic. We'll talk more about the Rift Alliance momentarily. The Barsenthor teamed with a Twi'lek Balmoran resistance leader named Zenith, and they defeated a number of Imperial soldier Sith warriors and two Sith lords, Darth Lacris and Minax. Lacris had been the governor, and his death caused the Sith to fall into disorder, fleeing the planet. After about 30 years of near-continuous resistance, the Sith were driven from Balmora, but the cost was devastating. Millions of Balmoran citizens died in the fighting or via summary execution, and the flora and fauna of the planet were each heavily damaged. The Class Characters With the preliminary events of the Galactic War out of the way, we can continue the class character storylines we started last episode. You'll no doubt recall that we did character profiles for all eight class characters telling each of their stories from the prologues, filling in what little canonical info we have. We covered their stories, which began in the game's prologues in 3643, and took them up to early 3642, just before the Galactic War began. Now we're going to continue the class character storylines by covering their actions from the start of the Galactic War through the Chapter 3 epilogue in 3640. Originally, the class storylines ended at the epilogue, but the game's second story expansion, Shadow of Revan, added a short set of missions for each class, which we will cover next episode. We will cover them in the same order we used last episode, and they will vary in length, though the Hero of Tyathon's story will take a bit longer. 
As you will notice, the stories often intersect, most notably at the Battle of Corellia, which begins in 3641 and lasts until mid-3640. As part of a larger assault on the Core Worlds, the Sith Empire attacked Corellia, Corellia in 3641 with a massive invasion force, gaining control after a palace coup led by corrupt Corellian politicians. We will return to Corellia in every class story as it serves as the location of an ongoing conflict like Balmora and Kesh. Though Corellia is much larger overall, with specific story missions for every class character and multiple quests that can be completed by any of the Republic or Imperial class characters. Obviously, the stories require us to retread the years 3642 to 3640 a few times to cover everything, so just bear with us. Cypher 9, Imperial Agent Class. Last time, the agent was tracking the Star Cabal after their false flag attack at Ison 4, which involved the slaughtered civilians by attackers dressed as Sith to trick the Republic into declaring war. The attack at Ison 4 succeeded and became one of the many reasons cited for returning to war. Star Cabal is a secret organization started in the wake of the Great Hyperspace War in 5000 BBY, with the express goal of eliminating both the Jedi and Sith from the galaxy. Cypher 9 tracked members of Star Cabal across the galaxy, visiting Belsavis, Voss, and the Titan Rings, and more. On Belsavis, Cypher 9 teamed up with an advanced AI droid named Scorpio who had been working with Star Cabal for many years. Cypher 9 overpowered Scorpio and was able to extract info on catching the Star Cabal. Cypher 9 rebuilt Scorpio's droid body with added restrictions and she agreed to travel as one of the Imperial Agent's companions. As we will see in the next episode, freeing Scorpio had huge consequences for the rest of the galaxy. After Nine's actions caused so much trouble for the Star Cabal, they used their high-ranking Imperial contacts to have Imperial intelligence shuttered. Nine was then transferred into the Imperial Army and assigned to Corellia in 3640 during the Battle of Corellia. While there, Nine took part in the fighting, but also discovered that Star Cabal was using double agents to maneuver Jedi and Sith into duels, killing them off very slowly. Nine disrupted Star Cabal operations and faked their death, allowing them to escape Corellia undetected. After departing Corellia, Cypher Nine was finally able to confront and kill the leaders of Star Cabal on their hidden space station in late 3640. After 1,360 years, Cypher Nine was Cypher Nine neutralized Star Cabal and their genocidal plan to eliminate all Force users. Due to their exemplary work, Cypher 9 was made one of the leaders of the reorganized Sith Intelligence Division. Voidhound, Republic Smuggler Class. After securing the treasure of Nakdrayan, the smuggler was retained as a privateer for the Republic Navy with Senator Bevera Dodonna as a handler. During 3641, Voidhound and their companions worked tirelessly for the Republic. They secured Project Nebula on Balmora, defeated the White Maul pirates hiding on Hoth, and shut down Rogan's smuggling rings on Voss. Voidhound's tireless work gained them two 
gained them two nemeses, Imperial Grand Admiral Kirill and Rogan, a fellow Republic Alliance smuggler. However, it was however on Tatooine it was revealed that Senator Dodano was working for the Empire and all the work she had Voidhound doing was covertly helping the Empire. From then on, Rogan and Voidhound began working together to expose Dodana and other traitors. Voidhound and Rogan were able to arrest Senator Dodana at Port Nowhere and then tracked Admiral Kirill to his flagship. Voidhound infiltrated the ship and fought Kirill, who was eventually killed when a grenade detonated in his face. By winning this duel, Voidhound took control of Kirill's pirate fleet and was subsequently given the choice to aid the Republic or go it alone before agreeing to help the Republic. Finally, in early 3640, Voidhound and their companions received the Republic Medal of Service on a ceremony on Coruscant before returning to privateering for the Republic. Darth Knox, a.k.a. Lord Kallig, Sith Inquisitor class. Unlike other class characters, Knox was in something of a bind when we left after being overwhelmed by the Force Ghosts of past Sith while using the Force Walk ability. Nox was cursed by Darth Thanaton, but was healed with aid from their companions and learned to control Force Walk, siphoning power from the Force Ghosts. Nox was also given control of a fleet-killing superweapon laser known as the Silencer, which was ship-mounted and wiped out an entire Republic fleet in one shot. The Silencer was one of the many superweapons being built by the Sunraiser back in Episode 7.2. Finally, after circling around one another for some time, Thanaton challenged Kalig to a Sith ritual duel on, on a Kageth on the occupied world of Corellia. By now, Nox was more than Thanaton's equal. The Kageth spawned multiple parts of Coronet City and saw Kalig humiliate Thanaton in a duel in front of Imperial dignitaries. Kalig was supercharged by the Sith ghosts, and Thanaton fled the planet in terror breaking the rules of Kagath. Thanaton went to Korriban seeking aid from the Dark Council, but was rebuffed and mortally wounded after Kalig arrived. After 37 years as a Sith Lord, Thanaton's neck was snapped by Darth Mortis for breaking Kagath. As a result, in early 3640, Lord Kalig was officially granted the title of Darth Nox, promoted to Sith Lord, and given Thanaton's seat on the Dark Council. In about two years, Darth Nox has gone from a slave to one of the 15 most powerful beings in the whole empire. Not bad, kid. As you can tell, we will be covering the same period of late 3642 to 3640 multiple times, but we'll try to avoid covering the same stuff multiple times when possible. The Barsenthor, Jedi Consular class. Fresh off ending the Dark Plague, the newly minted Barsenthor was tasked with getting the Rift Alliance to stay in the Republic. The Rift Alliance was a group of resource-rich Republic worlds united by their disdain for the Republic's corruption and incompetence. Representatives from Balmora, Manon, Sullust, and others formed the Rift Alliance but did not secede from the Republic. Instead, the Barsenthor convinced the Rift Alliance to stay with the Republic by leading Republic troops and local resistance fighters during the liberation of Balmora. For his efforts, the Rift Alliance agreed to fully rejoin the Republic, opening their vast resources in the process. 
However, by 3641, the children of the emperor had become a problem. While leading forces in the Battle of Corellia, the young Jedi Consular discovered that someone called the First Son was shielding the other children from detection. On Corellia, the Barsanthor learned that the First Son was actually Jedi Master Seo Bakarn, who was completely unaware of this fact. The children of the Emperor, as we discussed in episode 7.2, were children taken by the Sith Emperor and imbued with some of his consciousness using Sith alchemy. The children were then sent out into the galaxy, waiting as sleeper agents to be possessed by the Emperor at any moment. Once the Barsanthor invested Master Bacarn in a duel, the first son persona took over, giving Bacarn's body the Emperor's powers. But Master Bacarn fought back internally while the Barsanthor dueled externally, injuring the first son and downing him. This allowed Seo Bacarn's persona to regain control, expelling the first son permanently and allowing the Barsanthor to track the other children. During the fight, forces under the Barsanthor's command secured key forts across Corellia. These forts would be used by the hero of Tython to successfully end the battle, the battle of Corellia. For unmasking the children of the Emperor and their leadership at Corellia, the Barsanthor was promoted to the rank of Jedi Master and given a seat on the Jedi High Council. The Hunter a.k.a. Scree Imperial Bounty Hunter class. In early 3642, the Hunter became the grand champion of the final Mandalorian Great Hunt and began capturing targets from the exclusive Blacklist bounties on Terrace and Hoth. Afterwards, the Hunter went to Nar Shaddaa to attend a party with former Great Hunt Grand Champions, but the party was attacked by a Republic task force before Hunter arrived. After the Republic raid, the hunter was framed for the attack and the deaths of many Republic diplomats. Supreme Chancellor Denaris also placed a 10 million credit bounty on their head. Hunter and their crew soon learned that Supreme Chancellor Dorian Denaris and his trusted Jedi advisor, John Saros, were responsible for the frame-up. Even though the Galactic War had already begun, the Sith Empire still disavowed the Hunter's ambitions. Thus, Scree became a target across the galaxy. Only one Sith Lord, Darth Tormund, would work with them because they shared common enemies in the Supreme Chancellor and his Jedi advisor. Using the Empire's recent invasion of Corellia to their advantage, Tormund and the Hunter forced Corellian leaders to vote to secede from the Republic. Within days, an envoy led by Janaris and Saros arrived. On Corellia, Scree and Tormin baited Saros and other Jedi into a trap, slaughtering the entire group. Then, the hunter fought through guards to find the Supreme Chancellor who confessed. Janaris had been deceived by Saros, who held a grudge against the hunter for killing his friend, Jedi Master Kellyan Jaro, during the Great Hunt. The hunter then killed Janaris and linked up with Tormund. For killing the Supreme Chancellor in 3641, the hunter received a mountain of credits and was put back in good standing with the Empire. So, while most of the hunter's story exists on the periphery, they do get to assassinate the President of the Galaxy, and that's a pretty big deal. Meteor, Republic Trooper Class 
whereas most of the characters bounce around, Meteor starts that way, but ends up spending most of 3641 in 3640 on Corellia fighting different Sith threats after the invasion and eventually helping lead the planet's liberation. Following the destruction of the Gauntlet superweapon, Meteor and the rebuilt Havoc Squad, which is just Meteor and their companions, earned the ire of Imperial General Arcos Racton. The general kidnapped several Republic heads of state, but his plans were foiled by Havoc Squad repeatedly as they rescued kidnapped allies and escaped capture by Racton. For these heroic actions, Meteor was promoted to the rank of Major, though Racton wasn't yet finished. On Coruscant, Meteor was called before a Senate tribunal investigating their actions, a witch hunt organized secretly by Racton using corrupt senators. This is the second Senate hearing that Meteor gets called into, so if, 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 you're, if you're big into uh, senatorial hearings, that's the class you need. Despite the investigation being a farce, Meteor was nearly imprisoned until one senator who had been saved by Havoc Squad spoke up and allowed the true evidence to be presented, exonerating Havoc Squad. Afterward, Havoc Squad was sent to Corellia to defend the planet against the Sith invasion. When Meteor arrived in 3641, the Sith had already seized Corellia's capital, Coronet City, and the Republic-slash-Jedi forces were reeling, having been pushed into scattered resistance efforts with locals. However, Havoc Squad was able to make an immediate impact, defending a residential center from Sith attack before rallying workers to retake a Sith-held factory. Later, Meteor led the Republic counterattack that began to push the Sith off Corellia, retaking a massive citadel called Bastion and killing General Racton in the ensuing firefight. For their, for their efforts in defending and liberating Corellia, Meteor and Havoc Squad were honored on Coruscant. Empire's Wrath, a.k.a. Emperor's Wrath, the Sith Warrior class. The Sith Warrior had aided their master, Darth Barras, in completing Plan Zero, which was instrumental in dissolving the Treaty of Coruscant. For the Warrior's effort, Barras was promoted to the Dark Council and put in charge of the Sith War effort for the Galactic War. Knowing the Warrior was responsible for his rise, Darth Barras feared his apprentices' growing power and sought to eliminate them. On a mission to quash the Emperor's wrath and their companions were betrayed and nearly killed by supposed allies. However, the young Sith warrior yet lived and was soon confronted by two Sith servants, collectively known as the Emperor's Hand. They explained that a new Emperor's wrath was required following Lord Scourge's defection because the Emperor sensed Barris was planning a coup. The Sith warrior agreed and was dubbed the new Emperor's wrath by the Emperor's Hand. The Sith Emperor had secretly left the known galaxy, but Barras took out, found out and took advantage, kidnapping the voice of the Emperor, a host body who speaks for and has the power of the Emperor. Barras then proclaimed himself to be the new voice, but Darth Vauron of the Dark Council was suspicious and Barras's ascension was blocked for the time being. To expose Barras, the new Wrath began eliminating Barras's allies on Belsavis and Corellia. On Voss, the Sith warrior killed the voice, freeing the Sith Emperor's essence from a dark side entity called Sal Mekor. On Corellia, the Wrath successfully defended Valron from assassination attempts and uncovered a, the final secret to Barassa's power. 
Baras imprisoned and fed off the dark side energy of the entity, a cis spirit with powerful precognitive abilities. The Wrath freed the entity, depriving Baras of his last ally. Finally, on Korriban in early 3640, the Wrath challenged Baras to a duel, killing his former master in front of the Dark Council. The warrior was then hailed as the true Emperor's Wrath by the entire council. The Hero of Tython, Hunt for the Sith Emperor. Seven class characters down, and we save the biggest for last. As we said in episode 7.3, we have very little canonical info about Swotor, but we do know that the Jedi Knight class is the character who canonically completes the game's main story, hunting down the Sith Emperor. When we left off, the Jedi Knight had just saved Tython and the Jedi Order from destruction by killing Darth Angrel and ending the Desolator Crisis. For their effort, the knight was given the title the Hero of Tython. The Galactic War began days later when the freed Jedi when the Jedi freed Revan and learned the Sith Emperor's plan to consume all life in the galaxy. Thus the overriding goal of the Jedi of the Republican Jedi was to stop the Sith Emperor from, well, you know, killing everyone and everything. To that end, in early 3642, Jedi Master Tol Braga came up with a plan and assembled a strike team, which included the Hero of Tython and Kira Carson, to stop the Sith Emperor. Unfortunately, though the plan was extremely ambitious, it was also hopelessly naive. Master Tol Braga intended to find, capture, and redeem the Sith Emperor. Uh, the first and most glaring issue is the idea itself. Uh, the Sith Emperor cannot be redeemed to the light because he does not desire, he does not have any desire for redemption. Some beings simply cannot be redeemed. But outside of this conceptual flaw, the Jedi and Republic knew almost nothing about the Emperor or Droman Kaas as it had never been charted. The first issue cannot be resolved, though Tolbraga didn't yet know that. The second issue was at least partially resolved after Jomar Chol, a Zabrak Jedi, performed recon of Drom- performed recon of Droman Kaas and crash landed on Tatooine after escaping under fire. Chol was rescued by the hero of Tython, and the data was put to good use. After Chol's intel was analyzed, Tol Braga's plan started to come together. The hero was dispatched to Balmora to aid in its liberation and find Jedi Knight Warren Sedonu. The hero was successful, and later in the year, the Barsenthor built on that good work to push the Sith off Balmora permanently. The hero then moved on to Quest to rescue Tol Braga's apprentice, Sahar, who was under siege by Imperial forces during the Kesh War. Sahar was a was formerly a member of the Dark Council, but was redeemed to the light side by Master Tol Braga. However, Sahar began slipping back into the darkness and decided to surrender, preferring to be executed instead of falling. Sahar prepared to capitulate to Sith forces commanded by, Lu- by Lord Scourge, the Emperor's Wrath who had betrayed Revan and Surik in 3950, after receiving a Force vision of the Jedi who would kill the Sith Emperor. Scourge may have seemed like a bad guy for his betrayal, but he legitimately believed it was the only way to assure the Sith Emperor's death. So it was, some 308 years later, that the hero of Tython came face to face with Lord Scourge on Kesh. The hero reinforced Sahar's fortress compound, talked 
the former Sith out of surrender and braced for the imminent Imperial attack, but it never came to pass. Through a ray shield, Lord Scourge saw the hero and immediately called off the attack, knowing what had to be done. Scourge told the hero they would meet again and then departed for Korriban to report to the Sith Emperor. The hero was unnerved by this cryptic meeting, but soon rallied to aid Republic troops before departing Kesh for Hoth. There, the hero and their companions located schematics to the Emperor's Fortress, a massive space station built above Dromund Kaas. Now that Tolbraga's team had powerful cloaking devices and the schematics for the Emperor's Fortress, they prepared for their final assault on Dromund Kaas in 3641. Members of the Jedi Council expressed doubts about their mission, but their concerns were largely ignored, though, as it turned out, Tolbraga and his team should have listened to the Council's advice. Above Jeroman Kost, the team infiltrated the Emperor's Fortress, but Jedi Knight Kira Carson sensed danger. The hero found Lord Scourge, and the two fought a fierce duel in which the hero pre- prevailed but spared the Sith Lord's life. As the assembled Jedi moved into the Emperor's throne room, he surprised them revealing surprised them by revealing that he had baited them into a trap. The Sith Emperor then knocked all the Jedi unconscious and overwhelmed their minds with the Force. Each Jedi was possessed by the Emperor and made and made a thrall to the dark side, receiving months of training and torture on the Emperor's fortress. Sometime in 3641, the hero was contacted by the Force Ghost of Jedi Master Orgus Din, who or- urged them to fight the dark side. The sound of their master's voice brought the hero back to their senses and the light. The hero found Kira Carson, who had also broken free of the Emperor's mental hold, and the two made their escape. Along the way, they encountered a battalion of Imperial Guards who were slaughtered from behind by Lord Scourge, who had freed the hero's droid T7. The Sith Lord knelt before the hero, pledging service and promising to help defeat the Sith Emperor. The group fled the Emperor's Fortress and made for Tython, where Lord Scourge explained much of the history of the Truceth Empire that we discussed in Episode 7.0. Scourge explained how the Nathema ritual made the Emperor functionally immortal and that the Emperor intended to perform a second ritual, wiping out all life. To start the second ritual, the Emperor needed death on a planetary scale and he intended to wipe out a world to do so. By way of reference, this is the time when the Sith warrior class takes the title Emperor's Wrath after Scourge's defection. Some Jedi on the Council stridently objected to Scourge's aid, but the hero and Grandmaster Satel Shan vouched for the now former Sith Lord. What follows is a comedy of errors wherein the Sith Emperor intends to destroy a world only to have the hero, Scourge, and others stop him. The Emperor then moves to a new world and the cycle repeats itself. This happened on Belsavis, Vos, and, as we will see, Corellia. Along the way, the hero then redeemed several members of Tol Braga's strike force, including Warren Sedonu, who knew that the Emperor's next target for the ritual was Corellia. The Sith Emperor would have his forces commit atrocities against billions of civilians to fuel the ritual, using the chaos of the Battle of Corellia as cover. Fallen Jedi Tol Braga would lead the Emperor's forces, killing as many civilians as possible across the planet before detonating a Star Destroyer just above the capital, killing billions. On Tython, 
Grandmaster Sean mustered every available Jedi to Corellia to defend the citizens and place them under the hero's leadership. The hero and their Jedi reinforcements arrived on Corellia in late 3641, just after the Barsenthor defeated the First Son, which greatly damaged the Sith Emperor's spirit. The hero spread the Jedi under their command across the planet, protecting any location with a high civilian population. The hero, meanwhile, went after Tol Braga and a wild lightsaber duel ensued, both on the ground and in the Star Destroyer waiting just above Coronet City. Tol Braga overloaded the ship's reactors, readying it to blow, but the hero was up to the task, shutting down the reactors and defeating the fallen Jedi in combat. The Sith Emperor's hold over Tol Braga was broken, and the old Jedi Master was horrified at their actions, but agreed to go before the Jedi Council for judgment. The Sith Emperor was badly injured when his connections to Tol Braga and Sayo Bakarn were broken, which put Endgame in sight for the Jedi. The defeat of Tol Braga ended the Battle of Corellia in favor of the Republic slash Jedi. After successfully invading Corellia, orchestrating its secession from the Republic, and assassinating the Supreme Chancellor there, the Sith should have easily taken Corellia. But a concerted counterattack pushed the Sith back, and mounting losses proved too much. By the end of the Battle of Corellia in early 3640, 10% of the entire Imperial military had been killed there. That is a fuckload of people. Corellia was liberated and rejoined the Republic, though it suffered more than 10 million civilian casualties and environmental devastation during the battle. Following the liberation of Corellia, the Hero, Scourge, and the Jedi Council all agreed that a top-secret attack on the Emperor was necessary. Grandmaster Satel Shan agreed to lead a, con- a contingent of Jedi and Republic troopers in a diversionary attack against Dromengoss to give the hero the time to attack the Sith Emperor directly. Only the hero of Tython and their astromech T7 would be allowed as other organics couldn't resist the Emperor's direct influence. After Grandmaster Shan's attack diverted most Imperial forces away, the hero and T7 infiltrated the Dark Temple. Within, the hero and T7 fought their way into the Emperor's chambers. The Sith Emperor appeared as a frail, elderly human who was seemingly unconcerned with his recent losses. The hero and Emperor exchanged pithy remarks, and then the duel began. The hero wasn't dumb enough to try redemption twice. The Sith Emperor unleashed torrents of force lightning, which the hero struggled to stop with their lightsaber. Then the Emperor unleashed wave of du- waves of duplicates of himself that he had created with the force. The hero and T7 cut these apparitions down, imber- injuring the Emperor each time. The Emperor then attacked with force lightning that the hero deflected until they were close enough to land the killing blow, slicing deeply into the Sith's abdomen. The Emperor collapsed before his body disappeared in a violent burst of dark side energy. For their heroics, the Hero of Tython and all their companions received the Republic's highest honor, the Cross of Glory, and the Hero was promoted to the rank of Jedi Master. After 1,473 years, the Sith Emperor was finally dead. Well, not really dead, just knocked out of commission for a bit. As we've noted, The Sith Emperor dies many deaths before they're really gone. 
For years, the emperor had spread small parts of his spirit and consciousness across dozens of host bodies at any given time. Most recently, we saw his use of the first sun and Tol Braga on Corellia, when the emperor had more hosts preserving his consciousness. The death of a host body was less severe, but by the time of the Droman Kas operation in early 3640, the emperor's host bodies had all been destroyed, save his original body, the Valkorian host body on Zakul, and the emperor's voice host that the hero just killed. So, while the emperor wasn't really dead, his defeat at the hands of the hero damaged his spirit so heavily that he was forced into restorative hibernation for more than two years at a special facility on Yavin 4. The damage was so severe that the emperor's spirit withdrew totally, even from the Valkorian host body. Only the emperor's caretakers on Yavin 4 and the emperor's wrath knew the truth of the emperor's survival. Fallout from the Sith Emperor's death. For more than a year, the Republic slash Jedi and the Sith Emperor and the Sith Empire separately investigated the Emperor's death. In the end, both sides came to the same conclusion: the Sith Emperor was really dead. Though the general public wouldn't find out about the Droman Cost mission and the Sith Emperor's death for two more years. Unsurprisingly, the Emperor's death had immediate and profound consequences for the Sith. The upper echelons of Imperial power began to crack apart upon hearing the news in early 3640. The Dread Masters, powerful and ancient Sith seers, declared their independence, as did Darth Malgus, though his would remain secret for the time being. Meanwhile, Darth Mar stepped into the void at the top of the Dark Council and served as the de facto leader for the time being. Darth Malgus's New Empire. In 3640, mere days after the Droman Kaos operation, Darth Malgus learned of the Sith Emperor's death and decided to make his move. You'll recall that Malgus's relationship with the Sith Empire has been souring since 3653 when the sack of Coruscant was used as a political ploy and not a means to truly destroy the Republican Jedi. Afterwards, Malgus was lately involved in the Cold War and only showed up at the Battle of the Foundry earlier in the Galactic War to steal droids and tech. In truth, Malgus had been gathering allies to follow him away from the bloated rot of the Sith Empire and form a new imperial power. One that was still Sith in nature and still served the dark side, but was a little more woke. No, really. When proclaiming his new empire, Malgus literally says it must be strengthened by tolerance. Malgus wanted to get rid of the humanocentric, repressive shit that the Sith usually embrace and basically start a new Sith order, which was open to all who long for conquest, freedom from inhibition, and the right to follow their passions. Don't be fooled, though. They're absolutely keeping this slavery and imperialism, so we're basically left with the hedonistic Sith Empire. Darth Malgus had a long-term girlfriend's last save named Alana, Elena Darrow, who he, which seemed to inform much of Malgus's approach to his new empire. And then again, he did kill Darrow himself to get rid of the weakness of love, so maybe he's just really into consequence-free sex with hot non-human women and owning slaves? As we've said before, Malgus is a land of contrast. For anyone who argues in favor of the possibility of a good Sith Empire, Malgus's new empire is the best example you're going to find for that theory in canon or legends. 
don't get too excited, though. The new empire only officially lasts about 18 hours. In 3640, Malgus and some allies secretly conquered small territory in the unknown regions and stole the now-vacant Emperor's Fortress space station, but needed a big military victory for political legitimacy. Luckily for Malgus, a crisis brewing on Ilum seemed to provide the perfect opportunity. Earlier in the war, Imperial scientists discovered that the Adegan crystals used in lightsaber construction contain rare stealth properties that could be exploited. Armed with this knowledge, the Sith made plans to attack the largest source of Adegan crystals in the galaxy, Ilum. Long considered a holy war to the Jedi, Ilum had been used as a place for young Jedi to build their lightsabers and test their skills since its discovery circa 22,000 BBY. The Imperial fleet, led by Darth Arho and Grand Moff Regis, arrived at Ilum, where it was countered by a large Republic-slash-Jedi fleet under Jedi Master Jarek Caden. In 3640, the Battle of Ilum was joined, and much like before, the Sith were initially successful, gaining a foothold on the ice planet and killing Master Caden in the process. The Sith immediately began removing thousands of Adegan crystals, completing their objective in the process. It appeared that the Sith would overrun Ilum completely until the defenders received aid from an unlikely source, Darth Malgus. The Republican Jedi would have normally refused, but their situation was dire and, hey, an important storm, right? Malgus gave his new allies the location of their POWs and Sith leaders, leading to the death of Darth Arho and many other Sith. With the counterattack keeping the Sith preoccupied, Malgus was free to hijack Sith transports carrying the Adegan crystals. Malgus then jumped the the Emperor's Fortress and his fleet to Ilum using special cloaking tech and publicly proclaimed his new empire across the Net. Emperor Malgus called for anyone to join his woke, hedonistic new empire, which already included former Sith, Trandoshan mercenaries, Mandalorians, the droids from the Foundry, and various criminal syndicates. Unfortunately for Malgus, that was the peak of his new empire as his announcement only served to unite two disparate enemies against a common foe. If Malgus had solely attacked the Sith at Ilum, he probably would have been fine. The Republic may not like the Sith, but they had already suffered heavy casualties in the Battle of Ilum and would have used the opportunity to escape. Instead, Malgus ordered his chief lieutenant, Darth Severin, to launch simultaneous attacks on both Republic and Sith positions. Both sides knew they would be overwhelmed without help, and so it was that the Sith and Republic slash Jedi made their second alliance. The joint Sith and Republic pushed back against the new Empire, killing Severin and putting his forces to flight. They then worked to decloak the Emperor's fortress, subsequently infiltrating the space station. Seeing his plans turn to ash, Emperor Malgus set the space station to self-destruct before dueling the assembled Jedi and Sith, who were led by the hero of Tython. The parties crossed lightsabers with Malgus, attempting to overpower his enemies, but they were too many. The combined power of Jedi and Sith was too much, and Malgus was thrown down a reactor shaft to his seeming demise. With that, the Battle of Ilum and the brief Sith Republic alliance ended. Emperor Malgus and his new empire went into the dustbin of history after about 18 hours of official existence. The Republic slash Jedi refortified Ilum while the Sith Empire retreated, having failed to recover the 
Adagon crystals. Following the Battle of Ilum, the Galactic War experienced a brief lull in hostilities. In early 3639, the Republic and Jedi would press their advantage in the wake of the Emperor's death and promoted our old friend Jace Malcolm as a supreme commander of the Republic military. The Sith Empire, conversely, was in shambles. In addition to the Emperor's death, the Sith lost at least 15% of their military strength in the past year alone, not to mention the defection of the Dreadmasters in Malgus' new empire. To replenish their forces, de facto Emperor Darth Mar allowed non-humans to join the Sith Empire, adopting Malgus' idea of a less humanocentric empire. But they still kept the slavery and imperialism. With that, we've completed all the content Swotor shipped with in 2011. The prologues in episode 7.3 and chapters 1 through 3, plus the chapter 3 epilogue in this episode. However, the main story continues in Swotor's five story expansions, which is where we will pick up next episode. Thank you for listening to this episode of A People's History of the Old Republic. Next time, we will see the final death of Revan, the resurrection of the Sith Emperor, and introduce you to the Eternal Empire of Zakul. And follow us on Twitter at Photorpod or email us at photorpodcast at gmail.com. Send us questions and comments, and we will answer them on the show. I'm at AthertonKD on Twitter. And I'm at LucasAmazing on Twitter. Thank you again, and may the Force be with you.